Good to see you, Michael. Welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. Awesome. Mate. Hey, tell us exactly how you got into tech. What landed you as the CEO of Tradify? Yeah, I'll give you the abridged version. It's been quite a few years, but I actually got a degree in politics. And then probably like many people that don't know at that age what you want to do, I ended up finding an ad in the Guardian newspaper and ended up getting a sales job at a publisher. And I actually thought it'd be a really good way to potentially get into journalism. And what I realized very quickly was that journalism didn't pay very well when you're starting from scratch, right? So there's a few years where I'd have to go and work for the, the Watford Observer or a sort of local newspaper. And I hadn't really worked hard on that university. So I fell into this sales role and kind of went from there. I was in media sales for, for a few years, probably up until about 1999, the internet thing had started to kick off. There was quite a lot of investment money going into startups. It seemed really exciting. I've always been interested in new stuff um, and technology. And so I don't think I necessarily had this vision of this internet thing is going to be huge, but it just seemed really exciting. And so in 2000, I joined Microsoft. They had, hopefully you're both old enough to remember MSN. And yeah, they had this sort of online business called MSN. Super early internet advertising was less than 1% of ad spend, way lower than that actually at that, time, at that point in time. So I jumped in to their commercial team to help build out what became a really big advertising monolith actually in the early days of online advertising. So that was amazing for me. It was a really great experience. I spent seven years there. I then left in 2007 to run what was AOL UK, so AOL's business. So again, you're probably both America Online, as was, or as is, and their business, which gave me broader general management experience. So it took me more away from purely being focused on the commercial side of that was a big big part and that was a fantastic experience did that for a couple of years and then I joined a French startup so I really had this itch to do something more entrepreneurial I think when you work in a big company like Microsoft in many respects that job was quite entrepreneurial because it was all so new so every year being there seven years didn't feel like seven years it felt like a different job every probably in the first couple of years every six months but certainly every year it felt like a very different experience and just the growth in online advertising just to be part of that it was pretty phenomenal. I, I met a number of venture capitalists and just said, look, I'd love to jump into a smaller thing, help build that. And I landed on this French company called Critio and Critio was an advertising technology business and it was probably around 50 people. I jumped in 2000 and we grew that to a couple of thousand employees, a couple of billion dollars in revenue over about seven years. And we listed on the NASDAQ in 2013. So that was just a phenomenal, for me, that's probably my, still one of my career they're all career highlights for different reasons, but that was a really incredible career highlight. I moved to the US to New York in 2015 with the company. Again, I always, again, had a bit of an itch for lots of different reasons to, to live there. For me, it felt like the center of the universe for kind of technology and software businesses. And then in 2019, my wife is originally from New Zealand. We got three kids. My eldest was going to middle school and she just said, oh, should we try something different? And I think when you've moved country once, it seems less intimidating than it might do. And we just said, yeah, let's just, there was no, no real plan. I was quite happy in New York, but we just made the move, came down here in 2019. I immersed myself in the tech scene that was here and then met Adam Clark, who was chairman of Tradify at the time. And he said, look, hey, Tradify is a really cool business. Why don't you meet Curtis, who's the founder, which I did. We got on really well and I, I jumped on the board of Tradify in 2019. And then about a year into that, Curtis put his hand up and said, look, I'd really think it's time for us to find a CEO. It's time for me to step back. And he asked me and I thought about it for a split second. And uh, yeah, it was an easy decision. It's one of those things where Tradify reminded me of the feeling I had when I met the Critio founders. And that was a great business model. You've got this recurring revenue. You've got this set of customers that need the product. It really has a big impact on their lives. They're going to pay for that on a, on a regular basis. Really good team. The team, I think, was important to me. I could see there was a good team. I'd helped hire the 
but then CMO, now CRO into the business. So I, I knew she was really strong and a great operator. And the market, just the size of the TAM and the fact that we were still really early really excited me. And actually, I think from New Zealand, it's harder to do certain businesses. But for me, I think selling to small business, small businesses from here felt easier from it didn't matter where you're on the world, you could do that. And so all those sort of boxes were ticked and it made it very easy for me to jump in as the CEO. And then, yeah, here we are almost four years later. Yeah, pretty awesome. Thanks for letting us in, mate. I've got a bunch of questions and I'm sure Sean does too on your current role. But before we go there, can you give us a highlight, just one, from your time at Microsoft, Curtio, what was, what was the main thing that you took away from those places? That's a great question. I think Microsoft for me was I got to work, it's a big, Microsoft's a really big company, and I think I just got to work with some incredible operators, which I probably didn't appreciate as much as I do now. So some of the things I just naturally do, I realized I learned from the machine that was Microsoft in terms of how they do metrics, how they look at numbers, how they drive performance, management, all those things that are embedded, some of which I probably had some level of frustration with occasionally because I felt they made us move slower than we could have done. But I look back and I just think there was incredible people I worked with. And it was, a, it was a magical time, really, to be in the internet space at that point. So for me, it was a people thing. I met some incredible operators that I'm still very much in touch with and watch their careers keep going. So that's been, that was amazing. Critio for me was just ambition. It's probably the word I would pick. I think the one thing, French company, doing really well in Europe, very dedicated to being a global leader. And that was obvious when I met the founders on day one, this is going to be a really big business. And they were convinced of that, super, they brought in great people, executed against that mission and never really lost sight of that. So that ambition, I think is really important. I think you see that a lot in really strong founders that really believe they've got a fantastic product and mm. it can be global. So that was that. And then did you say Tradify as well? No, no Tradify yet. You didn't? Oh, um, okay. uh, we'll come to Tradify. Mate, you've been in big hubs, London, New York, as you said, like the world revolves around you. Uh, coming to New Zealand, what's the biggest takeaway? What is the number one thing that you can really work here? Opportunistic. Secondly, the challenge. Yeah, opportunity is a bit what I touched on. New Zealand is a country of smaller businesses because of the nature of the size of the economy and the population, all those things. Innately, it's not been surprising that a company like Zero came out of New Zealand because I think there is a really good understanding of the challenges that small businesses face because you're surrounded by them. So I think the, soft, the opportunity is that there are lots of software businesses that go after that segment that really have a deep understanding of what that looks like and what it means. And because those businesses, if they want to be successful, have to go global from the get-go. It becomes a bit of a cliche, everyone says it, but it's true. You've got no choice, right? You're gonna, you can go local to begin with and grow a, a decent business, but it's never going to be a huge business if it's software. So I think having that deep understanding of a segment and then looking at where there are homogenous groups that, like trades companies, for example, exist in other parts of the world, I think is a really big opportunity. I still think that's the thing that, that New Zealand going after kind of niche vertical software plays against that segment I think is super powerful so that's one opportunity challenge I think is just the you're at the bottom of the planet there are some I think you can talk around that but it is does make it harder than if you're in a New York or a London from a time zone perspective if a big part of your market's in Europe US is easier but Europe certainly I think it, it does make it challenging I go back to the UK reasonably regularly but that's a that's not a it's not a one week. It's not a leave on a Monday, come back on a Friday type of trip. But you could do that. It wouldn't be very good for you. But it's a, yeah, I think that's a challenge. And you just have to think about how you set the company up and how you make sure you've got a really strong culture so you can manage that effectively. A lot of the people we spend time with are founders. And you're in that unique position where you've worked with a couple of different founders now. 
and then become the CEO of their company. So when you look at that, like, where do you see that distinction occur? Like, where do you see a founder being really strong or when do you think it's a good time for them to be starting to look for someone like yourself to come in and help continue to scale that business? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, it's probably not as binary. It's hard to give a binary answer because I think there are founders who are great CEOs who stay as a CEO, right? And there's lots of very famous examples of that. So it isn't always the case that a founder needs to look for a CEO. I think the strongest founders I've seen have been ones that recognize they have weaknesses and they treat it like a sports team. So they look at the field and they say, I've got I'm an amazing goalkeeper, but I need a striker. That's not my strength. I'm going to go and find the best striker in the world. I think where founders tend to go wrong, the ones that don't execute that very effectively, is they, they bring in very junior people because they don't want to be intimidated by, by someone that maybe has a strength they don't have. And then they build this team of junior people. And that will get you so far. But I think the strongest founders I've seen have been the ones that just assemble great teams and recognize that. I think you see that in any great company in our space. If you look at their bench, they've brought in this incredible talent that fills gaps they've got or builds in the strength they might even have. For me, that, that's, that's the sort of difference. And it might be that one day that, that is the CEO. And ideally, I think a founder needs to recognize. I mean, Kurt, Kurt's put his hand up, not because he's got weaknesses necessarily. He just decided it was the right time to bring someone like me in. And I think that conversation was easier because he knew the strengths I brought that were different to the strengths that he had. So, yeah. Michael, I've always been curious. So when you do then make that transition, for someone like you then coming into an established business, Established loosely, right? What does yeah. the first 100 days look like? What are your priorities? How are you looking at things? Ideally, the number one thing I always think about, and I say this to, even to all new employees or people taking new jobs, you want to have a, a measurable impact. That at the end of that period, you can mm-hmm. say, I came in, I made this change or did something, and this was the output at the end of that 100 days. I almost feel like it's the most important part of your journey, actually. So I get very frustrated when we have new employees and you talk to their manager and the manager says, oh, they've only been on board for three months. <laughs> I'm like, what? What do you mean? They've only three months. There's a lot you can. There's a lot you can do, and, and, and maybe some of the things you. So I want to have a, a measurable one thing. At the end of that period of time, I can say, yeah, I did that. I made that change, and this is what that resulted in. So that's probably the key thing. And the other thing is just having a really good handle on the culture and building trust and credibility. Also, in that hundred days, they're probably the two most. If I can do those two things at the end of the period, that's really important. Is pre that period, have a great understanding of the business, which I think is partly what builds that credibility because the the current team rightly or wrongly sometimes will judge new people by their level of understanding of the the business i think i had an unfair advantage that i was on the board so i knew the metrics there's always still stuff you don't know but i I had a pretty good handle on what where trade if i was and what it could do and i think as a board member probably brought a little bit of credibility with the current teams that probably made that made that easier you made some pretty good points there i've seen lots of people especially in the smaller founders shift across thing they come in and their measurable impact is, well, I brought three of my friends in or I sacked a couple yeah, of people yeah. or I redid this. But there's no, no second part of that discussion. And the output was X, right? I've made changes for the sake of changes. The important part is, and the output is this. We are now growing faster. We have now rebuilt how we're doing this and the expectation is this. And I think that's a super important part. When you come in, it can't just be making changes for the sake of changes. You actually got to be able to have an output for that said change and I know even I've had made that mistake when I, when I took over years and years ago. We did stuff, but I don't think we articulated the output very well to, to the whole team. And, and that leads to your second point of, of culture. I think still people remain the most important part of business, right? Yes, 100%. Yeah. If you can't articulate the why behind things, I think you end up leaving a good bunch of people behind. And in that first 90 days, that's, that's when you get to make that impact of getting people to go, oh, I can go on a journey with this guy. 
yeah, it's going to have the outcome. So yeah, it's really handy tips. Michael, how do you view the leadership team? How do you establish one? There's a strong narrative that exists, especially amongst the investors, is that you need to bring in people who've done it two or three times over or two, two, two or three times the size of your current revenue base. How do you view things? What's the balance there? I don't necessarily entirely subscribe to that. If I go back to my sports example, then yes, you, that naturally you would think, okay, I'm going to, the ambition is to be this big, therefore I need to assemble the team. But you have to think about the right timing. So I think the mistake that often happens is people bring in the superstar who scaled, but they bring him in too early. So the superstar sat there going, there's nothing here for me to do yet. I need you to be 400 people, 500 people, whatever the number is, and then I can really bring some strength. So I'm a big believer in promotion from within if you can do that. And I think if you can find those superstars to get the culture, understand the product, and can grow with the company, that's phenomenal. Um, and I think you usually get a mix of the two, right? I think what I've generally seen is you usually get a mix where you've got some people internally who are just phenomenal, fantastic, they grow with the company. And then you get other people that scale to a point and you realize they've reached their kind of upper limit. And then you go out and find that superstar who's going to take you to the next levels. I think I'm always thinking about that. I'm always thinking about where we're going to be in two years and what's the team going to need to look like. And have I got the right current team? Can they grow with us? And if they can't, what does that look like? Who could that person be? Where would they be based? All those types of types of questions. So I do think it's a mixture usually of the two in my mind. Mm. And in, in, in an ideal world, if you can find someone internally that can, that can scale with the company, that's, mm. the, that's the best outcome. Yeah. Hey, the other thing you mentioned was that you got exposure to the domain of trades whilst you were on the board. So in many ways, you had an unfair advantage, as I like to call it. So if you're a yeah. CEO coming into directly from a, let's say, adjacent or an outside type of a domain, what are the challenges you would have experienced? It's a hypothetical question, but what should one look out for? I think it's just, dis there's the internal language that's used. So the thing, every company has its own sort of vernacular, which sometimes means different things in different companies. And so I think understanding that, it sounds really obvious, but understanding mm -hmm. that vernacular. And so when they talk about metrics, you understand those metrics really inherently. And I think that's quite an easy thing to do quite quickly. I think the other thing is just to immerse yourself in the industry. I, I talked about, you talked about 100 days and I said there was a pre-100 days. For me, the pre-100 days is reading the board papers, reading all the metrics, figuring out if there's any along the long list of questions you might have on day one and then spending time with board members and maybe even people in the trades find someone that uses the software that that would probably be the thing that i would do is try and speak to someone so every time i have a trades person comes to my house i will have a conversation now i'm having a conversation because i'm trying to sell to them but if i'm not trying to sell to them i'm having a conversation to understand right you're using the software how do you use it what does that mean for you so i do i honestly believe if you're going to be a ceo you need to spend the time before you can come on board because you want to, back to my earlier point about impact, if you can fast track your exposure and fast track your sort of onboarding, then I think you'd be more successful and people will see you being credible. I think taking the team out for coffees before you've even joined and asking all those sort of sometimes stupid questions, that's the window you have to do that. And when you come on board, you're like, great, I have a reasonable understanding. There's still going to be things you don't know, but you've at least immersed yourself and taken the effort to really thoroughly understand that business. That's what I tend to do. And I, look, I'm lucky. I've done this for a long time now, and so I've got a Rolodex of people that might be in similar type of companies. Mm. I'm going to pick the phone up to them and say, hey, look, you're running a SaaS business that does sales to small business. Like, what's the biggest challenges you face? What should I think about? And that can also be really useful. So, yeah, I think that pre-work, is, if you're serious about it, is really important. Yeah, and I'm getting that domain part right. Ricky and I are across multiple companies now, and so I've yeah. spent the last three weeks 
calling different customers for each of these prospective people we're working with and just getting to understand how they think, how they operate, how do they make their buying decisions? Why do they make those buying decisions? What's important? I think I spent more time with construction people and people who run shopping centers in the last three weeks than I've ever done in my life. Because the construction that we're dealing with is slightly different from the trades that we dealt with yes. in the old days. And But it's really hard to bring previous experience you may have in scaling something if you don't also pair it with an understanding of the customer base you're doing. Because though I have previously scaled something and Ricky's previously scaled something, not everything is going to apply. It's not as simple as cutting out that piece of paper and going, here's said piece of paper. You actually have to still understand who you are selling it to, their customer journey. And I think... Over the last two years, I've watched a big change in SaaS where we're starting to talk a lot more and realize how important customer journey actually is. And it's putting a much bigger focus on some of the things you just talked about. Actually understanding your client becomes one of the most important things you can do, no matter what your role in a company is. Um, Dorothy, I love that advice. Get in, spend that 30 days, learn about who these people are, both internally and externally, so you're ready to make that impact. Yeah. Michael... Being a CEO is quite a lonely job. I've had the pleasure of knowing Sean for many years, obviously a good friend, and I've known you. What does the support structure for a CEO, a good support structure look like? Because times can be difficult, man, leading that, leading a global team, you've got big leadership teams, you've got expectations. So how do you find that balance? What do you look to for advice? I First thing I'll probably do is try and, I think you have to be very mentally resilient to do these types of jobs. For all the reasons you mentioned, it is pretty, pretty tough. I was listening to a podcast the other day. I think it was a CEO of Okta, and he was talking about when he was running engineering. At, and this is the best analogy I could draw on it, actually. I thought it was a great example. He was running engineering at Salesforce, and he said, yeah, I made really quick decisions. And then suddenly I was CEO at Okta, and I wasn't making decisions as quickly. And the reason was there was always a boss there at Salesforce to say, oh, hang on a minute, slow down. Maybe that's not the right decision. So for me, that was the best example of why it can be tough to be CEO, because at some point you've got to make a call. So I think you, you A, have to be incredibly mentally resilient. So whatever that takes, for me, it's like exercise, meditation, whatever you need to be able to zone out and make yourself mentally prepared to make those decisions. And then I think it's having a good board. I think that your board, although they're in a way your boss, your ultimate boss, as is your shareholders, they're people you should be able to lean on and pick the phone up to when you have those tough decisions or things you're not sure about. And then what I referenced before, I think having a, a network of either mentors or people you've worked with before who are doing similar things, that's the best therapy you can get. I find if I phone other CEOs and say, oh, I had a really bad week or this didn't go as I, as I expected and hearing them say, oh, I, that's exactly what happened to me six months ago or, and here's what I did. That's actually really useful because you're like, oh, okay, I'm not failing. This is a known. This is how I'm going to deal with it. So I think it's important to be able to speak to those people and and have that network. I think that's the, the advice I give to younger employees. Your network is the most valuable thing you're going to have moving forward in your career, partly because they're more likely to get you your next job, but also because they're the people you're going to lean on, right? Their careers will grow with your career. They're the people you can meet with a coffee and say, hey, look, I'm having a tough day. This didn't go as planned. What would you do? So, yes, that's my kind of mechanisms that I use. But, so, yeah, exercise and those things are really important to me. True, mate. Such a great advice, too, like for people at all different levels lean on your network so the other thing i was going to ask from there on is that ceos and leaders are put in these positions of role models especially for the younger crew we all make mistakes and i'm sure you made plenty michael can you share a few that you made along the way that you go 
I wouldn't go there again. And these are the reasons why. Probably the most common mistake is when we've hired people and I've said, and I believe my leadership style is if I've got someone who's on the leadership team, then I'm going to empower them to be successful. That's my role. And that means when you empower, it means true empowerment. It means you're going to hire the team. I'm going to support you in that, but I might have an opinion. And occasionally I've had strong opinions about people where I've said we shouldn't hire this person. And we've hired them. And, and all the things you said that you, that you thought, oh, I'm not sure about this have come true and that isn't a failure because I think you need to let people make those mistakes for them to realize that for next time but I think that's usually the most common mistake and if I look back the things that frustrated me the most is not calling if I've ever made mistakes it's not calling on people early enough and moving fast enough on those decisions and they're the thing that I think a lot of people struggle with is they they accept mediocre for too long and that can damage the, the business so for me I move try and move really quick on those things I think it's better for the employee it's better for the company in terms of other mistakes, I think there's product things we've talked about and not executed quickly enough that we should have. I think we've seen things in the market uh, and we've sat there and said, okay, that's not as important as these other things. I think that's probably a common mistake. I'll give you a real example at Tradeify. We've just rolled out tiered pricing. We've resisted that for a long time. We've wanted to keep the, the, the platform simple, simply priced for our customers because we think it's easy for them to understand what they're getting. But over time, there is a difference between different sizes of customers, right, and the level of complexity they're looking for and what they're prepared to pay for that complexity. So I think we could have done that earlier, possibly. We've just done that now. I think it's a really good step for us, and it's a good thing that we did that. Yeah. Just on that, though, trying to dig a bit deeper. So when you've gone through the exercise of pricing, how did you reach that decision? How did you discuss that with your leadership team? How did it actually flow out? Yeah, pricing yeah. is something we don't talk about probably mm. nearly enough. So like the process you go through mm. to do your pricing study would be really interesting to discuss yeah our approach is customer we're very much customer led we have a sort of one of our company values is we put tradespeople first and it's not just lip service we really mean that in terms of how we onboard people how we support them all those types of things we we're very research led so we will do a ton of research before we make decisions not to slow us down we will try and do it as quickly as possible we're very thoughtful about talking to current customers using a company to look talk to external potential prospects or people that aren't using software to really fully understand what's the, the value drivers of our products. What are they looking for in a product? What are they prepared to pay for that product? Are we priced appropriately? Are we overpricing? All those types. So we did a ton of research, which gave us a decent, we might have known some of those answers in advance, but it gave us the confidence, that, yeah, this is the right decision. And I think you have to be really careful with pricing. I think a lot of SaaS companies, mm. it's an easy lever to pull. It's not always the, the smartest ones to pull, but there's definitely nuance in how you think about that stuff. But we're very research driven. so. I think we did a lot of research, spent time on this to be really thoughtful around how we rolled that out. And then even when we roll it out, we roll out in cohorts and, and make sure we're getting the right feedback from customers. And then we do a fuller rollout. That's pretty much how we approach, approach most things. Yeah, which is really awesome, right? So you did research, you did outbound research, inbound research, customer research, rolled it out to cohorts, made sure you knew what you're doing. I think that's really solid tips. If you're going to do it, you can break it to cohorts, do your research, speak to customers, speak to prospects and find out what features matter and what they're willing to pay for those things. It's, it is something that not many people talk about, like how to actually do a pricing stuff, which I mean, I think you just articulated really well. And then again, it is a super easy lead. Like when things are difficult, you tend to see every software company tries to pull that lead. I think I pulled it once in 10 years and now it seems to be a very common thing to do very regularly. But as long as you're doing those things and actually doing it with, I like your term, research backed, then you can at least be making decisions that aren't going to negatively impact the way your customers are viewing the product, which is what you need to avoid. So yeah, we work with, yeah, we pay and we spent money on it. We, we spent money yeah. to work with a company that were the experts on looking at these things, right? You could do that work, right? That's the other thing is that don't try and be the expert at everything that you are. 
because you won't be. And so we put some, we looked at how much that would cost us and said, this is the right decision. It's strategic. It's important. Um, and then we outsource to someone that's experts at doing that type of stuff. Yeah, I think that's key. Hey, Mark, a lot of people listening in always want to know what a day in a life of a CEO looks like. So in your current stage, I know no two days are the same, but what does a typical day for Michael look like? I'd always start with a coffee, usually. <laughs> strong <laughs> one. Yeah. A, a, a strong one, yeah. I, honestly, I come to the office most days. Usually, I'll start the day looking at what I set out to do for the week and just thinking about how on track I am with that and what the biggest decisions are that need to happen. And that will differ by week. So based on our planning cycle, where we're at, I'll then usually spend time with the team. So my direct reports, the CTO, chief of staff, just looking at what we're working on, how far down we are with that. I will try and dedicate, every day I'll try and dedicate a portion of the day. One of the big parts I think of a CEO job is to think further ahead. Uh, that is your role. I think I have a strong, good leadership team who are doing a great job of executing against the vision that we have today. I think what often happens is certainly when you're smaller, it's harder, right? You are in the weeds, hands on the current business, but you're not thinking about the future business. So I try and spend time thinking about okay, what's going to happen in the next 12 months, 24 months? What are we not doing that we should be doing? I will spend at least once a month rewriting our plan, right? Which sometimes is just for me to look at, did we execute against what we said we would? What needs to change? AI is a great example of that, right? I think I've been thinking about that stuff for a while, but if you're not thinking about it and actually pushing your team to say, okay, what could we do? What could we do differently for our customers? Yeah, that's probably it. But a lot of people time, not spending time with the teams and the people, having coffees with people in other parts of the organization just to understand how they're feeling about the, the company and the culture. Yeah, it varies by day, but that's, that's yeah. probably a common day. Yeah. Nice. I appreciate that. Also, it's in our budget planning session and time. 2024 is around the corner. What are your predictions? How are you doing your budget planning? What does that look like for you for 2024? Yeah, so we have a funny, in New Zealand, the fiscal year runs April to end of March. But we, we'll do a number of things. One, we'll look at, start with the kind of top down, what's the TAM, what's the size of the market, what's our penetration? I like to start there. What's our, because that's quite sobering, right? When you look at your actual penetration, and you realize the scale of the opportunity, it makes you easier to think about bigger numbers. Uh, whereas if you do a bottoms-up plan, you're always going to get to a smaller number. That's just the nature of the beast. I think. So we start with the top-down. What could we, aspirationally, what could we do next year in terms of growing our share of this huge market that we're in? And then we do some validation exercises about what that, that could look like. In parallel, there will be a bottoms-up process, right, with our CRO to say, okay, what, is, what do you think my market next year could look like? And then we align those two things, look at outside influences, which I try to, the world is moving so fast at the moment from a macroeconomic perspective, it's very hard to predict those things. And we try not to be too pessimistic on that stuff, but it's worth having a number of scenarios. So I always scenario plan this stuff. I, I will have three scenarios. One, which is everything goes as we expect it to go, or everything goes our way. Super lucky, everything goes our way. That's a certain number. Down to another side, which is, okay, some stuff goes wrong stuff we can't control and things we can control, what does that look like? And somewhere in the middle, usually, in my perspective, it's the right number. So that's a, at a high level. That's how I think about these things. Do you take seasonal consideration into the mix? Because given you're a global business, so what's home market doing versus Europe and America? How do you view that? Yeah, it's very much market by market driven, right? So if you think about a direct analogy, but we're approaching the holiday season at the end of this year, that is a very different cadence in the UK, for example, than it is in New Zealand and Australia, right? So we know that in January, start of January, things are a lot quieter here, um, whereas the UK tends to bounce back a bit quicker, right? Post first, second of Jan, people are going back to work. 
Whereas here, actually, it's a slower start. People might not be back in until the nightfall tent. But so those things are all. We look 14th, at, 21st. Well, whatever the date is, yeah, speak for <laughs> yourselves. Uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever the date it is. But we, and look, that seasonality takes into our data. I think the thing that's sometimes hard for startups is what you did two years ago is almost irrelevant to what you're doing today because of the speed mm. of growth. That's the hard thing I think people struggle with. But yeah, we have a pretty good handle on seasonality in general, right? We know summertime in, in other parts of the world is very different to, to what it would be here. So yeah, that's factored in. Nice. Hey, uh, let's go on the other side. What's been your most rewarding moments to date at Tradify? Oh, that's a great question. I think probably for me, I think the most rewarding thing I see, we're heavy users, everyone is of Slack, and we, we, you know, we very much celebrate anniversaries of people that have been at Tradify, and the longer they've been here, obviously that's, that's a pretty big, big deal to us. I think when I see those people post and reflect on where they were when we joined, and even if that was four or five years ago and where we are today, that always gives me a real sort of tinge of, of pride, both that they're still here as part of that journey and enthused and, and everything else, but also just to see the, uh, for me, personal impact. And it's not just about me, it's the team as well. I very much want to make that point, but that's what kind of gets me out of bed is am I making a difference in a company? And those reflections where you look back, I think if you, it's very easy when you're running these businesses to think about next year, beat yourself up about the current month and occasionally not stop and say, hey, look, just stop it. And what we were doing two years ago and where we are now, I remember what we said two years ago where we wanted to be and then where we are now. And I think sometimes for CEOs, founders, it's good to stop and do that, even with your board, to remind yourself, look, we're beating ourselves up about all the things that we're not doing, but let's remember about the achievements we've made. And so for me, that when I see those posts, it makes me stop and take a breath, which I'm not doing probably as often as I should. Yeah, and that, that's really gratifying to see that, yeah. I'd go a year out and still don't look back and go, look what I did. Here's something CEOs and founders never do. And if you no. think about the thing that, that you really enjoy – to have people stay that long, you have to build a good culture. And I find culture a weird word because everyone can list me the five things that their company is culturally. This is my culture and we do, but the reality is it's not words, right? Culture is, is something that all of you yeah. together build. How have you and your team gone about building the successful culture of Tradify? What are some of the key tips? Like, it's hard to say how you go. What are some of the key tips and things that you put time and effort into as a CEO to help build and maintain that, that culture? The first thing I did, actually, we talked about 100, the first 100 days. One of the things we didn't talk about, I probably should have mentioned this, but the first thing I did in the first 100 days was rewrite our company values. And when I say rewrite them, there were nothing wrong with the values. But what we did was we engaged the whole company. It was easier then. It was only sort of 30 people or something. And we went through an exercise to say, here's our current values. We gave some guidance around where the direction where we thought they would, could be. And then we let teams brainstorm for a whole, I think we spent a whole afternoon doing this actually. We invested the time to let the team input into what the values could be. And they were nuanced. So I'll give you an example. We had one, one value, which was be kind. I don't ever liked it because I just thought, shouldn't we all just be doing that anyway? But actually, if you meet tradified people, it was very true. It was a really super nice culture. People were very respectful of each other. But the downside of that was there wasn't a huge amount of conflict. And I'm not saying there should always be conflict. But it meant you didn't always have those tough discussions because people weren't as direct as they could be. So I was quite keen to have a, a sort of value that embodied that kindness, but also made sure that we didn't shy away from, from conflict and debate and all the things you need to be rigorous in a business like ours. So that ended up evolving to be direct and kind. And so what that really meant for us is if you're in a meeting and you disagree with something, disagreement is actually healthy, but it's how you deliver that disagreement. It's how you deliver that feedback is really important and needs to be constructive. So that permeates the, the culture. And we made that shift and that change. So I think that was a long way of saying values for me underpins the culture. And if the values are something you've searched for on the internet, written up on a wall, put stickers all over the place, and done a big rollout, but they don't, they're not authentic, 
there's no point. I used to work many years ago with a very big bank credit card company and in their offices they used to have this big these values which we put customers first and I remember I was walking with one of the senior people at the bank and I was like yeah I struggle a bit with this one because you sign people up on this super low APR credit card and then you whack it up this inordinate level after six months is that really putting the customer first like those things don't seem <clears throat> I said no it's, I'm not criticizing the business strategy I'm criticizing like is it really authentic would your customers feel like you were a customer first company and so I think for me having authentic values that the people you meet, if you met a tradeify person today and I walk you through our values, I would hope that you would say, yeah, they, that gels, it makes sense. That for me is the most important thing for culture is, is values driven. And then if you take it a step further, because like I'm a, I remain a big believer that what you said, writing stuff on a wall means nothing. So if you're one of your values is be kind and be direct, when you're in meetings, do you lead with that same philosophy? So if you disagree with someone, are you pulling that sort of stuff out? Are you driving that kindness? Because I think every company does, at least now, most of them are trying to do culture by design and they're trying to do some of that sort of stuff. What I tend to see when I'm talking to people is they do that part. But then if you go and watch the actual interactions with people, the ones at the top generally don't always reflect what they're saying. Transparency is probably the, the best example. I'd almost all software companies have transparency or some sort of component of transparency in there. But when I talk and question them on it, that's not really an actual company value. It's a surface value, not a deep value. Yeah, that's what I mean about being authentic. I, I think you should just be honest with yourself as a leader and as a leadership team and say, yes, this value would be a great one to have, but we don't operate that way. I think yeah. that's, that's absolutely fine. And that's my point about the bank. I think you just, it's just about being, that's what authenticity means to me. It's not a buzzword. It's just that it reflects you as a person. So yeah, I like to think I'm constructive and, and kind. And if I'm not, look, sometimes I might not be, I might be super direct and want to get stuff done. And then you need a team around you that say, hang on a minute, Michael, you weren't, and I have a great people and culture leader and she will call me out on that stuff. And and I'll take that feedback. I think you have to be open to that feedback. So 100%. yeah, that's what values are. Values aren't about being that value 100% because you won't be. Exactly. And we make mistakes. But it's about calling each other out on it. And I think you can do that in positive ways. So we have a, we have a high five system and we, someone gets a, sort of some money at the end of every month to go out for dinner or two. And that's based on the values, right? It's not based on operational performance. It's based on their peers recognizing them reflecting different values across the company. And so that's a good way for us to embed the sort of the right behaviors. But yeah, you've got to, you've got to reflect the kind of the values of the company in each of your leaders and the team. I love that. Like you said, you can't do it 100% of the time. There are times where you can't be transparent, right? There are times where you're going to be transparent and say something and then three months later go, actually, we can't do that anymore. And Correct. Change it. Yeah, and I think a great example, yeah. What you're talking about is the important part. As long as you explain the why. Hey, I was really joked with you and I, I didn't do the kind of thing. I'm really sorry. What we were doing is we need to move really fast. I apologize for that. People, people are still adults that are working for you. They understand that yep. you are not direct and kind 100% of the time because you also have stress and jobs and families and things that you need to achieve. That's, and that's where I think that whole, what you've built really is you've got a really good connection with all of your people. So you can have honest conversations. You can make mistakes and have people go, oh, Michael, geez, you're a bit of a dick in that meeting. And you'll be like, oh, shit, yeah, probably was. And you can go solve yeah, that. Yeah. I, and I think that is the best example you can get of that you've built a good culture. People are willing to say that to you and, and you can then reflect and fix. And I think if, you, if that's happening in your business, your culture is good. Michael, shifting gear here a little bit. More than 80% of the ANZ SaaS companies don't go past 10 million an hour. There's probably million and one reason as to why. But you guys seem to have cracked the code. You've now gone global, you're getting traction, you're on the right growth uh, curve. 
what's been like what's been top two or two, two or three things that come to mind that really help you do that crack the code cool that's a good question i think the first thing is the product like having a great product i'm really i'm a big believer in that i think that goes a long way i think if you've got a great product then a lot of the other stuff can be easier if you haven't got a very good product and it's not competitive then you need to have a look really serious look at are you really going to compete right this is a question i often have when i meet founders of other businesses when they're super early and they're like i've got this amazing product and i'm the only one and then i'll be like okay what are you doing and then you look on an app store you say look i can see a gazillion other companies <laughs> doing the same thing and only go see them doing the same thing some of them are doing it better and they haven't done the research and haven't looked at that and so i think being honest about the area that you can win with your product i think is really critical so i think i was lucky that curtis built a great product he understood the the psyche and need of our customer base and have built a great product that we can get good product to market fit so for me that's number one and then that sort of understanding of the customer i think is tied to that i think great product leaders have a really deep understanding of their customer base and so i think we've always had that ingrained within the company and then i think it's just about understanding you go to market i think they're you know, having great go-to-market leaders that understand a model and it is a model for me it's a model it's not just people driven a model that can scale that you go, okay, we've gone from 1 to 10, then we're going to go from 10 to 20, then 20 to 30, whatever those numbers are. I think that's the most important thing. And so that's like how you approach trade media, it's how you build your sales team, it's how you onboard your customers. Like having a vision about what that could look like and being able to scale it as you grow the company, that for me is, they're just the two, that that is one and two. And then obviously three would be operational, like how does the company run as you go global? So we have a third of our company in the UK. So like how's that going to work? At some point in time, I knew we'd have to hire someone to lead that part of the business for us based in London. And again, we knew that in advance, right? Six, like six to nine months out, we were like, okay, this person's going to need to be there soon because you've got a team of people that are not senior. They're going to need someone that can guide them on a day-to-day basis when we're predominantly sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. And so how does that look? So I think having those three things together, that's how I always think about it. But the go-to-market is really important once you've cracked product-to-market fit and you understand mm-hmm. you've got a decent product. Mm-hmm. I agree. Product, people, machine, and the last bit that I really want to come back to, Michael, is metrics. You mentioned something at Microsoft, like it was a machine, they had everything figured out, there was really good operational cadence in place. When you look back at the experience, what can you take away from there and have been able to apply at Tradify? How do you view metrics? What matters most to you and the leadership team? I think you want to, I think the part of the problem with SaaS companies and our business and even as a board member coming in is we are like inundated with a lot of metrics mm. there's a ton of metrics so if you're not careful mm. and I see people sort of downloading all these SaaS scorecards and it's like that the sort of pointless until you understand what I think of as the, the most important metrics to the business the ones that you look at on a scorecard and there's like green red and amber and you look at it and you go there's a lot of amber or there's a lot of red we got a problem I think understanding what that looks like is probably the most important thing for me and then I think understanding, and, and the other thing is understanding the difference between vanity metrics and metrics that really drive the business. So there's a lot of metrics which are important to, you guys are investors, right? There's metrics that are going to be important to you, but don't necessarily drive the day-to-day operational business, but they are still important. So I think as a CEO, you're remiss not to think about those things. So you might make conscious decisions around some of those vanity metrics. They're not going to be great for a period of time because you're building something operationally that will enable them to be great in two years. And I think you make those conscious decisions and it's important to do that. And so for me, and then I differentiate those operational metrics that drive the business and our performance from those kind of top level things that our shareholders, investors, and everyone else is going to care about. It's one that we talk about a lot, for example, is ENPS, right? So our sort of, the one I care about the most is there's a question that goes out from our kind of internal system, which is, would you recommend Tradeify as a great place to work? And occasionally we get detractors, right? And that's someone that scores under 
think it's under eight. So we get this, we get into this big mm-hmm. theological debate about, but some people in the team, a seven is great for the justification. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You get this big, yeah. and then you get into a big debate about is MPS worthless or not, right? Anyway, I don't have that debate. I treat it as, look, it's not great. If someone isn't like 10 out of 10 on the company they're currently employed by, that's a problem. And I really care at that. Really, I really care about that stuff and dig into it. So there's metrics like that we look at, which I don't, we, we wouldn't obviously talk about those externally, but we do share them with our shareholders and with our board and, and we're open about that. So yeah, there's things like that. And I think that does drive the business, right? Because if you have a bad EMPS, everything else you're worrying about is irrelevant, right? That's where you should start. That means your team aren't happy. There's something going on that you need to figure that out. Yeah, solid point, mate. What's next for Tradify and Michael? What does the next 12 months look like? I think it's honestly heads down, like keep executing. That's the key word for me is we're executing well. We need to just keep doing that. I think we need to keep figuring out what's next for the product. And I think one of the things AI is obviously a super buzzword, but what you need to be careful of is thinking about it from, again, your customer's perspective. What do they need and how would it be useful to them? Because they don't care about whether it's AI or not. They care about whether it makes their job easier, faster, saves them money, makes them more money. And they're the things we, we often wrestle with. But yeah, if, if I was going to pick one, one word, it'd be execution. Keep executing, keep growing the business, keep growing the team, do all the things that we're doing well and fix things that we're not doing so well. There would be the two things I think about. Exciting, mate. All the best. And this has become my favorite question recently. I'm going to ask you the same. So when Michael does decide to hang up his boots or cleats, if you're listening in America, what do you want to be known for? Whew. I get it wrong with pro- this one. Probably, eh? that's, a, that's a really tough question. Legacy, as you get older, legacy does become important to people. Yeah. I know that. Um, I think the number one thing I care about is respect, that people respect me as an operator. That, that's the thing that is always, I don't expect anyone to like me. It'd be nice if they did, but if they respect me, that, that is the most important thing. I think I would be happy if people who knew me just said, yeah, he's, he's a good operator. That's really meaningful to yeah. me, yeah. It's uh, nice. That, it's this got to be the one question we don't give anyone heads up on. You just drop it all like <laughs> no, that. It's great. Not on there because otherwise it would be rehearsed, right? It would yeah. be super prepared. Yeah. It would be a much better that, answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm spilling that legacy. Be like, oh, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Everything start ready now. Yeah. yeah. All right. It was good. You're talking yeah. to two people who are actually in the same camp. We love operating, so that's what yeah. drives us. So that's great. Moving you to quick fire round, Michael. These are meant to be easy, but some find it rather difficult. I do not know yes. why. Favorite sports team? Oh, man, this is a tough one at the moment. So it's a team <laughs> called Queen's Park Rangers who are on the verge yeah. of, they're not doing very relegation. well this season. They are on the verge of relegation. Yeah. When I was living in the UK, they were still in the premiership. So QPR is my first team, always has been. It's a family thing. And it's near where I was born. And then Arsenal would be, when times are yeah. tough, you, <laughs> you can have to. You can have to. That's the same thing. I like to watch the Premier League and so I have to have a team that I would back and it would, it would be Arsenal not because they're currently top so, yeah. uh, nice there's, there's a theme here my team sucks and now who's on top it's huh? <laughs> Arsenal exit no uh, I'd still say QPR QPR, uh, QPR. QPR. we go over QPR yeah. uh, favourite music genre what do you listen oh, that's to a, that is, now this is a long winded answer so I go grew up it. really loving hip hop a very long time ago. Wait, wait. I, there's I, a wait here. Yeah, he's saying wait. I still, from still here love. Anyway. I still love hip hop. So we're back Damn in the day. I still do love hip hop. So I do, I love new stuff. So I still do lean. Mm. So I loved hip hop. Then I was probably a teenager when house music kicked off in the UK. So I leaned very heavily into that. Then drum and bass came out because that was a very UK driven thing, which I wasn't as keen on the first time around because I was probably a bit of a hip hop house snob. And then I yeah. grew to grow up on people like LTJ Book and all these other people that did stuff with drum and bass. I was like, oh, this, this is really unique. And even today, I still listen to 
some of the younger people that are now doing stuff that is harking back to those days that I really find impressive. So that's probably, I major on electronic music, but at the same time, I will, I went to a gig to see a band called Slow Dive, which is a shoegazy band. So I, I'm pretty broad. Nice. Yes. But you're going to claim it as hip hop, right? I get it. I should have picked it. No. Like, it's become a theme. So we are aggregating data. We'll release the results probably sometime next year. In order for you to be successful in SAS, you have to do two things. One is be a lover of hip hop. And the second one we're going to get to. So it'll depend. We'll wait for the answer for the second one. Before we get there, favorite place to visit? Where do you like to take your family? Probably because of where we are now, I would, it would be New York or London. They're a close tie. New York, London, maybe third Tokyo. I love those cities. It's just I love their energy. Like the Big energy. Lights. When I get off the plane yeah. in those places and I just rock up in the city, I, I love just that energy and just reeks of opportunity. That's probably the, the phrase I would yeah. use. I really enjoy that. Ricky keeps saying people are in it, but I'm not going to say it's favorite place. Not places. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, I'm, you can, there's a theme here. I'm giving you like three answers to <laughs> yeah, yeah, question. Yeah. Have you not noticed that? <laughs> like, like the, that's what I said, man. Some find it tough. They can't. It's, the way, you, right? it's the way you're asking the yeah, question. Yeah. It is. It is. How are you going to aggregate? How are you going to aggregate data? You're like, oh, he's, it's all of these. No, things. Like, all these the things, best yeah. thing about these recorded sessions is you can edit the fuck out of yeah. it, right? So just like out the things that aren't. Yeah. Like, well, I'm just giving an answer. I would, I would currently say London then because it's home for me. There so, you yeah. Yeah. You I say that, but you wait till the end and it comes up and it'll be Ricky's house. And you'll be like, I never said that. <laughs> this is the other one, mate. This really just does define your career and your future. How do you like your peanut butter? Crunchy oh, no, or smooth? It's crun- I, I, crunchy. I really, <laughs> smooth is just, it's not, All right. if you like peanuts, why are you averse to having a crunch of a peanut? On your toast. 100%. Well, uh, 100%. Yeah, no, I'm completely crunchy. Is that the wrong yeah. answer? Does that mean I'm going to no, that's, no, right that's, 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 that's the right answer. That's the right answer. That's the right answer. We're with you. We just do not understand those yeah. people who go, I like it smooth. So eat Nutella then. Like, why yeah. are you having peanut butter? Your legacy is safe, right? Everyone's going to talk about you as a good offering now. You did hip hop and, and <laughs> peanut butter. That's peanut crunchy. Butter, crunchy. Yeah. yeah, good. You're good. set. You're set. <laughs> awesome, mate. Thanks for coming on the show again. No, and thanks for sharing all your insights. Yeah, no, it's great to catch up. I appreciate it. See you both soon.